you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter number 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look together this morning at verses 1 through 9, but before we do, I'm going to do something just a little different. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you before I even read the text from which I'll tell it. How about that? What I want you to see in our passage, what we will see in our passage, is that Paul offers us here three really practical exhortations. He says, pursue unity, unity, togetherness. He says, don't worry. And he says, meditate or dwell on the good things. Now, I want you to take note that virtually every world religious system would affirm the usefulness of those commands. They're moral. They're virtuous. They're noble. They're worthy of emulation in our life. These are things that we agree together we should do. We're better for it as a society, that we would pursue unity, that we would cease from our anxiety, that we would dwell on good things. But it's not our, our virtues, our values, or our morals that make us different as a people. It is the foundation upon which our morals, values, and virtues are built that makes us different as a people. That foundation has been well established in the book of Philippians, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we've been saying now for several weeks, the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes all the difference in the way Paul regards his circumstance and the way Paul regards the world around him. Now I want you to remember that the Apostle Paul is writing from an imprisonment. He's writing from a context of suffering and hardship writing to a church experiencing suffering and hardship. So we might sort of couch Philippians 4, 1 through 9 in these terms. How we can find peace and joy even in the midst of conflict, difficulty, or turmoil. Y'all ready? Let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Philippians 4, beginning in verse number 1. Paul says, So then, my brothers, you are dearly loved and longed for, my joy and crown. In this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge you die, and I also urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you've heard and received and do what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. It seems to me that the apostle is summarizing the prior text in verse number 9. He says there, Do what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. 
If you want to know something of how it is that you may have peace in your life without regard to your circumstances, perhaps even in unlikely circumstances, follow these instructions. Do what you've observed in me, Paul says. Do what you've learned in me, the apostle says. This is what you must do in order to enjoy peace in your life. Verses 1 through 3, Paul exhorts the church, as we said moments ago, that they should pursue unity. Verse 1, the Bible says, So then, my brothers, you are dearly loved and longed for, my joy and crown. In this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. We noted last week that that is, in all likelihood, the last part of the paragraph we studied last week. But in any event, it serves as a transition from that text to this one. Pursue the prize, the call, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And in the process of doing so, be about the constant, hot-hearted pursuit of unity in all that you do. He describes them as his loved and longed-for joy and crown and exhorts them that they would stand firm in this knowledge and in this way. In verse 2, Paul is very personal. He says, I urge you, die, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I urge these two women in the church to be on the same page and of the same mind, to agree not just in general, but to agree in the Lord. Now, there are many, and perhaps you've heard this approach to Philippians 4, 2 in the past, who would suggest that Paul is doing the ancient or first century version of calling names in church. He's meddling, as the old preacher would say. But there seems to be, even here, a tenderness about the Apostle Paul's approach to the church at Philippi. Surely there's severity in the tone of the Apostle Paul when it's necessary. He wouldn't shrink back from such a thing. But in the context of the book of Philippians, it seems that Paul is concerned here to remind Udai and Syntyche of the preciousness of the fellowship of the church. He seems to single them out specifically to encourage them to remember how sweet it is to walk together in the fellowship of the Spirit, in the fellowship of the church, to walk arm in arm for gospel advancement under the tender care of Jesus Christ. He continues in verse 3, Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who've contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Did you note that? There are a number of instances in the writing of the Apostle Paul where he speaks of those who are divisive within the church. We've seen it already in Philippians chapter 3. He refers to a divisive party within the church as dogs and warns the church that they should beware of such people. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. He exhorts Timothy that he is to reject a divisive man after the second and third admonition. That's good social media counsel too, by the way. Reject a divisive man after the second and third admonition. In other words, stop running your head against the wall. Eventually, you're going to discover that it does no good. It only causes concussions and has no bearing on the fool. Paul says, be careful of divisive people and often speaks of them as though they're existing inside the church, but in reality belong outside the church, and oftentimes that is the case. But in the case of Philippians 1 through 3, it is abundantly clear that Udai and Syntyche are sisters in Christ. 
Not only does he invite them to pursue unity, he enjoins Clement in this work and other partners in the gospel. He describes them as those whose names are written in the book of life. There are times when disunity makes its way into the body of Christ, and they are the most unfortunate of times. I want you to understand Longview Point Faith Family, the sweetness of fellowship that we enjoy together. And I want you to know how truly rare it is to enjoy the kind of unity and fellowship that we enjoy. And I want you to hear from God this morning that it is incumbent upon us. It is the spiritual obligation of every member of this body that we would steward well this precious gift that has been entrusted unto us. Last Sunday, we had a starting point class, and I was sharing with those coming into the fellowship of our church about our church, and I know what they always think. They think the same thing my preacher friends think when I tell them about our fellowship here. They, they, they roll their eyes a little bit, and they make the assumption that Brother Wade's still in the honeymoon phase. But eventually, he's going to find out about all the crazy people hiding out there in that congregation. And I've been looking for you. I've been watching and I've been waiting for the great discovery. And maybe they're out there and they're hiding very cleverly, camouflaging themselves among the faithful. But I'm going to tell you by my observation over the past year now that what we have here is truly rare. And I dare you to just look around and see if you can find it elsewhere. And I don't say that to sort of stroke our ego or pat us on the back as a congregation certainly doesn't have anything to do with me. I hadn't been here long enough to foster such a thing. I, I'm, I'm still at that place where I feel as though I can celebrate that without that dripping of, of pride. It's the work of God. There can be no question of that. But I want you to know how truly rare it is. And I want you to hear from heaven that you have a responsibility to steward this precious gift well. Paul is essentially saying that to the church at Philippi. You die a syntyche, Clement, church, know the sweetness of fellowship that we stand to have in Christ. Know how precious this gift is. Know that your effectiveness for gospel advancement is largely connected to the unity you enjoy as a fellowship. You know why people are being saved within the context of the ministry of Longview Point? You know why God seems to be at work within the fellowship of our church? It's in, in large part because of the unity the Spirit has fostered here among us. That's first century church growth strategy. Everyone be on the same page and press forward for the advancement of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, hear me well when I say that what we enjoy as a fellowship is a rare commodity. And, and God forbid we would do anything to presume upon that great gift. May God grant through the work of his spirit that it would continue to be so until Jesus comes to cleanse and claim his church forevermore. Paul says pursue unity. Essentially, he's talking here about peace. Now, there ought to be peace in the church, and it's the most unfortunate thing when that peace doesn't exist. You'll feel it. You'll sense it when the peace is broken. You always do. You can, it's palpable. You can, you can almost touch it. But there ought to also be peace in our personal lives, within our homes, within our families. 
And the sad reality is, and this is the reality, that within the sound of my voice, there are some of you sitting here looking so spiritual, and your homes sound like World War III. You put on the mask outside and everyone see what you, what you in, sees what you intend for them to see, but behind closed doors, chaos ensues. And I want you to know that not only should the house of God be a place of peace for us and our families, but our homes should be as well. And I, I, wish, I wish you would this morning, for those of you husbands and wives living in conf conflict, for those of you families who are living in absolute chaos, I wish you'd just put your line in the sand today and say this far and no more. My home, my family, the relationships that I enjoy are going to be a place of peace and rest for my spouse, for my children, for my grandchildren. We're going to be salt and light in our neighborhood by living differently than the world around us. Paul says pursue peace and unity. Should we not, as the people of God, who've been reconciled to the God of heaven, be a people of peace and unity? Paul says, come to agree in the Lord. Help others to agree in the Lord. You know how you guard against unity? You don't give it its head. You give it an inch, it'll, it'll take a mile. And you have the ability as members of the body, as members of your family, to cut it off before it consumes and, and overwhelms. A good preacher friend of mine says there's three kinds of people in the church when it comes to peace. They're peacemakers, and may their tribe increase. There are peace breakers. Those are the troublemakers who are always stirring up something. And then there are the peace fakers. Conversations with peace fakers begin like this. Brother Wade, I'm not trying to cause any trouble, but I just thought you needed to know. That's how it always starts. Be a, be a peacemaker within the context of the church, within the context of your home, within the context of your family. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they shall be called the sons of God. But Paul doesn't end there. In fact, in verses 4 through 7, he goes further. He says, not only should you pursue unity, but you ought to rid yourself of worry. How do you like that? Look at what Paul says in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do you see how Paul is building uh, the, the foundation here? He's, he's stating the case that underlies the command of verse 6, don't worry about anything but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. He begins with rejoice. And I'll say it again, rejoice. Glad hearts are seldom anxious about anything. Rejoice. Rejoice in what Jesus has done for you. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. We've received grace. We ought to be gracious in turn. And often, often, what curbs our graciousness is the presence of worry or anxiety in our heart. This is so basically practical that you'll be inclined this morning to set it aside as something you've heard a million times before or something that's crossed your mind a thousand times before. But if, if, you'll, if you'll feel the weight of what Paul is calling us to here this morning, there's not a soul in this room that ought to leave without some degree of conviction. Paul says, let your graciousness be known to everyone. Then he says this, the Lord is near. He's not way off watching, observing from some distance. 
The Bible says the Lord is near. Implicit in that statement, not only is his nearness, but his lordship over every aspect of our life. God is sovereign over every detail of your life. There's not one rogue cell in your body. There's not one scintilla of time in your existence where God forgets or turns away or leaves you to your devices. He is lord over our life. Because of that, we may rest If you really get down to the nuts and bolts of it, worry is the antithesis of faith in God. When we begin to worry over things in our life, we take into our hands what rightly belongs in the hands of God. Paul says in verse 6, Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Brothers and sisters, cease from your worry and rest in Jesus. Rest in Jesus. I mean that in every sense of the word. Rest from your labors. Jesus said, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. Jesus draws near and unburdens us from the cares and the concerns of this world. You know why we don't have a Sabbath as New Covenant believers? Because Jesus has become our Sabbath rest. The psalmist said, be still and know that I am God. We all have such busy lives and we run the rat race. It's a distinctly American thing. I know we think that this is the way of the world, but if you'll talk to people from other cultures, one of the most most outstanding things about our culture, and I don't mean that in an entirely positive way, but one of the most outstanding things about our culture is is this, this feeling that we have. We are compelled to be in constant motion, and there's guilt sometimes when we cease from our labor, right? Now I want you to know that sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Just sit down and trust God with what is beyond your control. Because in reality, it's all beyond your control. You deceive yourself periodically into believing that you're shaping the course of your life, but ultimately, it is God who is in control. Paul says, do not worry. If you've really trusted Jesus as Lord over your life, are there any legitimate concerns on your radar today? There's all kinds of slogans and observations we might make at this point. How we worry about things that never come to pass. Do you experience that? Most of the stuff we worry about is stuff that never really happens in our life. We're we're anxious about something that may never happen. We invent reasons to be anxious. I, I, I really think, I've confessed this and I struggle with this, I honestly think that I am addicted to stress and anxiety. Like if I don't have more things on my agenda to do in a given day than I can reasonably do, I don't feel good about that day, and I don't have a feeling of accomplishment when that day is done. But my fulfillment and my satisfaction, my value in the eyes of God is not about the do's and don'ts or the checklist of my day. It rests on the shoulders of his son, Jesus Christ, who is the absolute Lord over absolutely every aspect of my life. Although I may at times deceive myself into believing that I can turn the course of events in my life, ultimately, my fate rests in the hands of a good and faithful God who always does what is best for his people, who's working all things, even the bad things, together for the 
good of those who love him, the call according to his purpose. Brothers and sisters, you can rest confidently in Jesus. He is not asleep at the wheel. Aren't you glad for that? Now I want you to see a third thing in our passage. Paul says in verses 8 and 9, dwell on the good things. And there's more in this exhortation of resting from our worry. You should spend a little time there, but I want you to see this last point well. Paul says, dwell on the good things. In verse 8, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, or commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Now, can I confess to you for just a moment here, frustration at times as a preacher when I come to passages like this. Because passages like this are are the kind of passages that are lifted from their theological context, robbed of their gospel foundation, and inserted into the flimsy devotional material that you find down at the Walmart. And I find it so frustrating because I think familiarity fatigue with passages like this sets in and we don't hear the full force of what God is saying in the text because we've heard it abused and mistreated and manipulated to suit a worldly outlook, a worldly worldview, and at times even a worldview that is in conflict, not neutral to, but in conflict with the worldview, with the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to hear me clearly this morning when I say to you that before New Age was ever a thing, that before Joel Osteen ever had a ministry, God said you ought to settle your mind on the good things. Meditate on the good and the praiseworthy things. This is good practice, right? This is it. We as the people of God, saved by the power of the gospel, ought to settle our hearts and minds on the goodness of God in the gospel. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the hymn, Victory in Jesus, if you were here, and how God used that hymn in my early walk with him to to begin to bring every thought captive. That was how I would wrestle against the old lyrics and old thoughts and old language patterns and various other things to try to wrestle my thoughts captive to obedience to Jesus. Did you know that God not only cares about the things we say with our mouth, the things we do with our hands, the places we go with our feet, but what we actually think in our very heart of hearts. And I want in faithfulness to Jesus to bring every thought captive, that the meditation of my mind be on the things of God and the things of God alone. It'll change the way you see the world in remarkable ways. It'll all but rid you of worry, help you to be about the business of pursuing unity, Brothers and sisters, meditate on the good and the praiseworthy things. Now, here's another distinctly American thing that we ought to acknowledge about ourselves. We we like for teaching, even sermons, to give us some action steps, right? Tell me something to do physically when I leave today so that my life will be better or I will know Jesus better, more intimately, something along those lines. We, We like steps, Because we're doers, it goes back to that prior issue where we're constantly going and we feel the need to satisfy ourselves by checking off the boxes in our life. 
But did you know that many times in the New Testament, when, when the Bible challenges us to reform, to change, to righteousness, it's, it's really not about anything that we do externally, but where we, where we focus our thoughts, where we meditate in our hearts. I know I've mentioned this one before, but in Hebrews 3, the thing that holds the whole book together and the key to persevering in Christ until death is just thinking about Jesus. Now, our American hearts are unsettled by the notion that there's not something we can do. We're just left to sit here and think about Jesus. Yes, we're left to sit here and think about Jesus because focusing our thoughts on Jesus changes everything about the way we see the world around us. We are so prone to forgetfulness. We so quickly see with our eyes what distracts us and pulls and tugs at our hearts, keeps us from the promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a constant war within ourselves that we would walk by faith and not by sight, dwell on, meditate on the good and the praiseworthy things and watch what begins to unfold in your life. Oh, brothers and sisters, there, there is both a burden and an unburdening that can be borne forth from this passage. The burden is this. We are not always a people who pursue unity. We are most definitely a people who are characterized by worry and or anxiety. And we're not a people who do a good job at meditating on the good things. In fact, you drift into most uh, water cooler conversations in Christian churches this morning and you'll find much more negative discussion than you will positive. We moan and groaning about the government, coronavirus, and 9,000 other things. And there's plenty out there to moan and groan about. Amen? amen. Got a better amen there than I did on anything I preached about. <laughs> See what I'm talking about? See what I'm talking about? But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, we've got the best news going. We know the God of heaven. And perhaps more importantly, the God of heaven knows us. And he's given forth his son that we'd be forgiven of our sin, that we'd have the hope of everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, you may rest in Jesus. Aren't you glad for that? Would you commit this morning to pursue unity in every area of your life? to be serious about ridding your life of worry and anxiety and rest fully in the finished work of Jesus. He has it well in hand. And, and take, up, take up the weapons of spiritual warfare against the devilish thoughts, the hellish thoughts, the sinful thoughts, even the perhaps morally neutral but distracting thoughts that would prevent us from meditating on the goodness of God in the gospel the character and the attributes of God who's been so good to us. Meditate faithfully on the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every aspect of our life. Aren't you glad for what we have in Jesus? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. God, I, I pray that conviction would come. God, that this simple passage would impact the lives of those gathered here in radical ways. Make, make us a people of peace and unity, not just here, but in every arena of our life. God, I pray that you'd rid us of anxiety, that we would rest confidently in the hands of our Savior, Jesus. 
And I pray that through the work of your spirit, you would help us to meditate on those good and praiseworthy things. Truly, you are sufficient to fill our thoughts, our every thought. Lord, we could not exhaust your goodness. May our concentration be fixed there, not on the things of this world. We'll give you all the praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you, if you would, to stand with me. We're going to have a time of invitation and commitment. A time when we invite you to respond to the teaching of God's word. As God's instructed, as God is leading, if there's a step that need be taken, given our discussion this morning, given what we have observed in his word, the call is that you would answer the leadership of the spirit and follow faithfully after Jesus. What underlines this entire discussion is a belief that God has so loved the world that he sent his son, his only begotten son, into the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That the guarantee is secured by the sinless life of Jesus that he never sinned. Jesus fulfilled perfectly every expectation God had for humanity. What we could not do, Jesus did on our behalf. That he died on the cross, not just as an example or a martyr or even a victim. He died on the cross as our substitute. They're treated as though he had committed our sins in order that the Father might justifiably treat us as though we had done his righteousness by faith in him. But that's not the end of the story either, is it? The Bible says that Jesus is buried in a borrowed grave and on the third day he rose again. And that resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection through the power of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? That by faith in him, Jesus' resurrection is the down payment for ours. Now, brothers and sisters, that changes everything. You can trust a Savior like that, who's walked where we have walked, who's struggled with the sufferings and hardships and temptations of this world, even as we do, and yet without sin. There is no good gift he would withhold. If the Father would not withhold his own Son, doesn't it stand to reason that he'd provide for every potential need? Would you find your rest and salvation in Jesus? Brother, sister, if you're here this morning and you've always believed in the existence of God, but there's never been a decisive moment in your life, a moment you could look back to, when you turned away from the things of this world, and began to rest fully in Jesus. Would you make that commitment this morning? Would you yield to the work of God's Spirit in your life, repent of your sin, and believe on Jesus Christ? What you'll find in Him, this world cannot afford. You won't find it elsewhere. Christian brothers and sisters, would you draw the line in the sand we spoke of this morning? Make today a milestone moment in your life when you commit, commit by the enabling power of the Spirit to cease from your anxiety, to meditate on what is good, to be a person of peace in every area of your life. As the Lord's at work in these next moments, I would simply ask, in fact, I'll plead that you'll yield to the work of God's Spirit in you. Do what He calls you to do, what He's charged you with in this passage. May Jesus be greatly honored. Let's sing to Him. As we sing, you come. I've carried a burden for too long on my own. I wasn't real. 
to the point. Here's what's going on. Our Trail Life Troop will host an open house tomorrow evening at 645 here in the Worship Center for any families interested in participating. A model campsite is set up this morning off the back parking lot near the pond. Visit the campsite or plan to attend the open house for more information or contact Brian Houston. The Women's Ministry will host a new Bible study this fall. This study will be held on Wednesday evenings at 6 p.m. in room 215, beginning with an intro night on August 19th in the Student Suite. An online study will be available via Zoom Wednesday mornings at 9.30 a.m. beginning August 26th. Cost for materials is $10 or they may be purchased by the participant. Register at longviewpoint.org or on our Longview Point mobile app. Contact Vera Ann Salters for details. A construction team is needed to help Connection Church Belfouche as they remodel their worship area to accommodate more people. Trip dates are October 23rd through 30th. There will be an informational meeting Wednesday, August 26th at 7.30 p.m. in Room 100. Plan to attend this meeting or contact Pastor Jason for details. There will be a homeschool luncheon on Monday, August 31st at 11 a.m. All homeschool families are invited to join us. Register to attend at longviewpoint.org or on the Longview Point mobile app. That's what's going on at The Point. Let's expand His kingdom across the street and around the world. All right, just one thing quickly. Wednesday night is back this week. Praise the Lord for that. So we'll be back together for midweek activities and Bible studies and various other things happening on campus. Now, uh, we've simplified things in terms of scheduling. We had 14 start times for every activity, but everything is 6 to 7.30. There may be adjustments that you make within your specific areas, but the start time is 6 o'clock and the end time is 7.30. 
Now you can help us because of limited volunteers in preschool children and probably to some degree in youth, but preschool and children are the big areas by being as prompt as possible with drop-offs and the pickups. That will probably be easy right out of the gate because we're not doing a Wednesday night meal for a little while. We'll bring that back a little later. Right now we're looking at the Wednesday after Labor Day for bringing back the Wednesday night meal, but we're going to see how things go with school starting back. But if you can be kind of prompt with the drop-off, but specifically with, with the pickup. We've jokingly said at 7.30 we're giving out pixie sticks and Mountain Dew to all children that remain in the children's and preschool area. So y'all just take your chances if that's what you want to do. But, uh, but you can help us out with that. Uh, 6 to 7.30 and we'll be back in the saddle again come this Wednesday night. Sound good? Kiddos, we wish you well. Be a faithful witness to the gospel in whatever school context you find yourself in tomorrow. And some of you are already back in, in, different, in different schools, private school options. Sometimes we discount the ability of our kids and our youth to be found faithful in the work of evangelism and gospel advancement. But what I have experienced is that sometimes it's our kiddos who are the most effective evangelists. So be certain that as you go, you take the good news of the gospel with you wherever it is that you go. We're going to stand and be dismissed with prayer. See you on Wednesday night, I hope. Otherwise, we'll see you back on the next Lord's Day. God, thank you for the chance to gather this morning. Thank you for your word and for its truth. God, I pray for the enabling power of your Holy Spirit that we might observe the commandments you have issued us today and that we might do so in a way that brings honor to the only name worthy of our praise, that of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.